back with C3. I'm not going to tell you what episode number it is because Jordan told me not to do that anymore. So we can just upload them in whatever order. Don't call me out like that next time. (laughs) I'm your host, Colin. And I'm Jordan. Grab a cocktail and have a seat while we talk about some crime and our crippling depression. Jordan, what do you got going on for crippling depression today? I don't have crippling depression. I have crippling anger. Um, I have PMDD and it is almost my lovely time of the month. And I have been ready to physically strangle anyone and everything near me for the slightest thing. I was at work and someone came in chewing gum and it almost set me off today to the point where I was like about to jump over my station like eye starts twitching. and attack. So bear with me. Might be a little bit moody tonight, but you know why. Yeah, go off. So that's my aggression for this week. What about you, Colin? Well, so you know how like you'll be at work sometimes or even just existing um, and you get hit with like a memory of something you're like, yeah, fuck that. All too um, often. Well, uh, I was at work the other day, and this periodically comes up in my brain because I'm still mad about it. So, my neck tattoo. I don't know if I ever told you where it came from, but it's the same neck tattoo that a gay porn star has. Yes. Okay. So, the <laughs> fucking when I went to the tattoo shop, they so they claim they tell this story to people. They claim that I pulled up the, the vid a video of it, and was showing it to them and pausing so that the way they could get the tattoo design. No, bitch. I googled the person, and there happened to be a shirtless picture, and it had, like, just the perfect view of the neck that we needed to get it done. So they're lying-ass motherfuckers. Dark star, that I'm talking to you, and I hope they hear this at some point, and then I deserve an apology, and you need to tell everybody else that you lied. But... That's where I'm at right now. Who are they telling and why? <laughs> like randos. They're like, just I'm, like, you're casually in there, like, getting your tit tattooed, that's per se. And I'm it's like, like... a punchline story for them. Oh, my God. Okay. Yeah. So... Weird flex, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> but, um... Yeah. So, this is our next themed episode, technically. And we are going to hit you with some sibling crimes. Jordan Ooh. is going to take it away. Thankfully, this week, my case is not personal. I'll let them have a rest. I love her. Kisses. Anywho, but seriously, this week, my case is about the Papin sisters. I'm not sure if y'all have heard of them. I have not heard a single thing about them. Sick! Anywho. So, this particular crime took place in France in the 1930s, and many people took interest in it at the time. It was also a part of what was believed to be the class struggle argument. So a lot of people use this as like a point um, to be like, well, this is why this is wrong. It brought fear also to many of the people who employed these maids that it could happen to the next. So I'm going to give a little bit of background before we really get into the crime and like who they were as adults. Um, So you kind of understand them a little bit better because out of context, it's just like, okay, y'all crazy, but. It makes sense. Also, I'm going to do that thing that I do every episode where I forget to tell everybody at the top what we're drinking. <laughs> However, it's, I don't even remember what brand it is, but just know it was a $4 bottle of wine and it's pineapple from Aldi and moving on. Aldi, please sponsor us. We do love you. <laughs> I love a good Aldi's deal. They slap. So getting into the background about the Pappen sisters. Um, they were born into a very poor family and their mother was Clemence Dare. 
And it was believed that she had a long-term affair with her employer, which is the father of her children. It's just speculated. I'm not saying it's true, but I'm agreeing. Um, when she was pregnant, her boyfriend named Gustav married her, even though, like I said, it was believed they were employers. So he was like stepping up, which is what would be done at the time. Um, their wedding was in October of 1901, and five months later, Amelia, their firstborn daughter, came along. Um, Gustav actually wanted them to move due to the affair, but Clement said that she would rather die than leave Le Mans. Tell me you're not cheating. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know about me. The same. At this time, though, Gustav started to drink heavily due to the stress on the relationship that this had caused. And Christine, one of our main contenders in the story, was born shortly after this in March of 1905. She was sent to live with her aunt due to her mother being an unsuitable caregiver and unurgering. She was there for seven years. Her sister Leah was then born on September 15th, 1911, and she was given to her uncle, whom she lived with until he died. Amelia had lived with their parents until she was around the age of nine or ten. Gustav raped her, and her mother Clemence believed Amelia had seduced him, so she was sent to Bon Pastor Catholic Orphanage, and soon after, Christine and Leah were also sent to the orphanage. You know, I'd probably commit some crimes, too. Like, I don't know what they did yet. However... They got yeah. a good basis for, like, I'm at least going to be aggressive to somebody. So not a good time. Just saying. Straight up not having a good time. Yeah. So Clemence's plan was to leave them there until the age of 15 when they could work. Amelia in 1918 got the calling to be a nun and joined the covenant, ending all communication with her family. Cannot blame her. Period. We love a good nun. Chef's kiss. <laughs> love her. And cutting off toxic family. Yes. Um, it is believed that she finished her life out in the church. She was basically never heard of again, which honestly is very realistic for the time because who, if you cut off your relationships, you're not going to really honestly, talk to I anybody. I only think about just becoming a nun and living my life out like that as well. I mean, I can't say on the edge of having a mental breakdown, <laughs> I haven't thought of the same. So actually more so just when like running away and like driving off the cliff is more my option. When I lived with my dad and I was like mad depressed, I definitely, I was, because I was mad at the world, I definitely started Googling, like, how to become a citizen in Australia, because I was <laughs> going to... fucking Australia, that's such a jump. I was about to get the fuck out of here. That is a jump, but go off. Um, Christine, around the age of 15, supposedly also got the calling to be a nun um but her mother forbade her from joining so she began her work as a maid for many families clements did make them change jobs a lot for more money because all the money that was made was going to clements these girls didn't get a dime for any other work when Aaliyah was of age christine did put in good word for her with her with the houses that she worked for she was like hey my sister she also does the same work do you mind if we work together like she's a great employee basically recommending her so most of the jobs that they worked, they were worked together at this point on. So Leah's 15. Christine's not too much older than her. They have this weird bond because they are trauma bonded together for life. Trauma so, bonds are the best bonds. Yeah. So Christine was reported to be a good cook and a hard worker while Leah was quiet, obedient, and introverted. She only ever really spoke to Christine. And also, it's not like they were being spoken to a lot. So reports are basically just from what was observed. In 1926, they began to work for the Linsil family. Rene was a retired solicitor, and he had a wife named Leon and a daughter named Genevieve, who lived at home. 
His other daughter was already married and out of the house, and their house was located on number six, Reburn in Lemaines. Many other families were jealous of the Linson family as they had hardworking maids that were so well behaved. It is reported that Leon never spoke to the girls in the seven years that they worked for her and only communicated with notes. She also performed white glove tests to see if the house was clean to her liking, and if not, the girls suffered abuse at her hands. There was a lot of reports of some pretty intense um, abuse given to them. Um, at, sometimes it was just like simple like hand slaps. Others were their heads being banged into the walls of the house while they were yelled at. Um, so varying reports, also kind of hard to get accurate reporting since the girls really weren't spoken to too much. And then what year are we at now? We are in 1926 right now. Yeah, so. So this is like the beginning of their time working there. Mm -hmm. Um, Sadly, these girls had nowhere to go and no one but each other, so they just continued to do their job. Like I said, trauma bond after trauma bond with these girls. On the evening of February 2nd, 1933, the family had plans to go to a friend's for dinner. Leon and Genevieve had been out all day shopping while Christine and Leah were home cleaning. Christine is reportedly seen around town going out to get a repaired iron, and it is stated that when she plugged it back in at the house, it did cause the power to go out. Later in the day, when Leon and Genevieve came home, Leon was upset over the power being out at the house and it not being clean, and she began to attack the girls. Since the girls attacked back, Genevieve also attacked them to defend her mother, so it led in this big fight. This led to Christine to gouge her eyes out, and for Leah to do the same to Leon. Jesus Christ. With the woman blind, they continued their attack and beat them with a hammer and a pewter picture, which is like those old-timey, like, kind of stainless steel jugs for okay, pictures. Yeah. Um, so they're getting clonked upside the head with those. They also attacked them with a knife, and they cut their butts and their thighs. The two women had been beaten to a pulp, and their faces were unrecognizable, and their fingernails had been uprooted from fighting. Blood stained the carpet in the hallways where they laid. So it was gruesome, the attack that these girls had done to them. Sometime later, Renee came home to get the girls to leave, and when he saw that the house was dark, he assumed they left without him. So he's like, oh, hey, cool, I'm going to go head over to my friend's. When he was there, he was talking to his son-in-law, and he realized that they weren't there, so they went back to the house around 6.37. They were unable to enter due to the door being bolted shut, so they then called the police, who climbed over the garden fence and entered the house. They found the woman, and Leon's eyes were found in her scarf, which was around her neck, and Genevieve's eyes were found, one on the stairs and one underneath her back. Thinking that the maids had also had the same fate, They went to go look for them, and they found that Christine and Leah's door was closed with a light coming on underneath, so they were trying to get in there and get in there. They called a locksmith to open the door. When the policemen approached the attic, which is technically where they were at the top of the house, they discovered the maids, naked in bed, clutching each other, covered in blood, with a hammer on a chair next to them, with brain matter and hair on it. They said murder and lesbianist. Yeah. They were immediately arrested. As we know, they would be. I can't imagine why. And they were separated. Christine had a very hard time with the separation, which is the older of the two. Um, In interviews, they both took full responsibility of the crime, and they were granted a visit with each other, and many reported that they greeted and hugged each other in a way that would make one believe there was a sexual relationship. 
my personal opinion is, is they're so trauma bonded. I don't even think there was a sexual relationship. They were the only people that they talked to for seven years. That's going to cause a lot of separation anxiety, yeah, but this is also say, a completely different time. When the only thing you know is gone taken from you. Yeah. So I think a lot of things were misunderstood for the time, but yes. I can see the scandal of it and people being interested. Oh, 100%. So in July of 1933, Christine had an episode that would lead to her being put in a straitjacket. She made many attempts to gouge her own eyes out. So that's just a thing for her. And she later made a confession that what happened to her, that the same like feeling and event that was happening, happened to her the day of the crime. She basically just snapped like a woman on an episode of Snapped, mm-hmm. lost her shit. Here we are. The sisters' chosen lawyer pleaded not guilty by reason of insanity on behalf of them. I was going to say what happened to them was would be enough, I think, to give a insanity plea. Yeah, especially growing up in like a Catholic orphanage. Yes. I don't think that would really be a good time, especially because then they just beat the shit out of you. But different times, different strokes, I guess. I don't <laughs> even know a saying for that one. Different times, different strokes. Yeah, I don't know. But Christine and Leah demonstrated signs of mental illness, such as limiting eye contact and staring straight ahead, appearing to be in a daze. The court had appointed three doctors to administer a psychological evaluation on the sisters to determine their state. So basically, you're crazy, you're not. Very simple. They concluded that the two had no mental disorder and deemed them sane to fit trial. They believed that Christine's affection for her sister was based on family ties and not an incestuous relationship as others had suggested. Mm. Obviously, when they talked about them, got a little background, they knew what was going on. However, during the September 1933 trial, medical testimony noted a history of mental illness in the family, obviously. Their uncles had died by suicide while their cousin was living in an asylum. The psychological community struggled and debated over the diagnosis of the sisters. Because they weren't really crazy, but... There's a lot of things wrong. Obviously, this wasn't correct. What happened? After much consideration, it was concluded that Christine and Leard suffer from shared paranoid disorder, which is believed to occur when groups or pairs of people are isolated from the world, developing paranoia in which one partner dominates the other. In this case, I believe it's Christine over Leah. This was especially true of Leah, whose meek personality was definitely overshadowed by dominant Christine. After the trial, jurors took 40 minutes to determine that the Pappen sisters were indeed guilty of the crime, and Leah was thought to be under the influence of her older sister and was given a 10-year sentence. Although Christine was initially sentenced to death at the guillotine, the separation from Leah proved too much for Christine. Her condition deteriorated rapidly once they were apart. She had written various letters pleading with Leah. However, her wish was not granted. She experienced bouts of depression and madness, eventually refusing to eat. Prison officials transferred her to a mental institution in Renee's, hoping that she would benefit from professional help. Still separated from Leah, she continued to starve herself until she died on May 18, 1937. Leah fared much better than Christine, serving only eight years of her 10-year sentence due to good behavior. She lived in the town of Natis, where she was joined by her mother. She assumed to have a false identity and lived her life out as a hotel maid. Some accounts state that Leah died in 1982, but French film producer Claude Ventura claims to have discovered Leah living in a hospice center in France in 2000 while creating the film In Search of the Papin Sisters. The woman he claimed to be Leah had suffered a stroke and rendered partially paralyzed and unable to speak, and that woman died in 2001. But I do feel really bad for them. 
I Especially because at the time they did not understand anything that was going on in those poor girls. So. No, they did not. I don't even know, but it's horrible. And I do feel bad also for the ladies who did get their eyes gouged out. Yes. That's rough. But if you were an asshole, kind of deserved it. I mean, Just there, saying. There is a graph out there somewhere that shows like. Fuck around and, and find, find out. out so <laughs> where it meets. And I. Just saying. Fate will decide how it goes. It's not my choice. <laughs> Anywho, uh, Colin. Yeah, I feel bad. I feel bad for the victims of said murder. However, I also their actions not apologizing for. Feel bad for the sisters because of the shit that they went through. Because I for sure, yeah, it was just a difficult time. I don't think there was professional help for anybody. No, not at all. The um, shit, there's barely professional help for people today. Yeah, but Leone was apparently um, reported to have like severe bouts of depression or quote unquote what was believed to be depression at the time, um, and that's when her rage towards the girls would be the worst. So she was probably having. Maybe like me, some PMDD when her so menstrual they, cycle was coming around. It was crazy. So were they thinking that like the girls had like a shared psychosis yeah. breakdown? They think that Christine like snapped and Leah followed because they were both in this psychosis together. Mm-hmm. That would be kind of like them against the world, which I mean, honestly, it was. So. It'd be cool if we did an episode on like shared psychosis. At some I fuck point. around with it. Yeah. Not that I fuck around with shared psychosis, yeah, but no. I like the idea of it. I should say. Let at me correct some, myself. Like get some background information and see like what yeah. even fucking causes that. Honestly, I think it's just the shared delusion. You're with someone and they're like losing their mind and you're like, period. Yeah, <laughs> that's it. I'm also going to lose my mind. Yeah, it's like, yeah, the, the FBI is looking at us right now. You're correct. They got a laser beam on our foreheads I'm right now. Dead. Run into the traffic oncoming straight at us. Get hit by a car, roll down the street. Don't matter. <laughs> well, got to pull up my notes real quick. I'm going to be covering the case of... George Kerr, Raymond Cheeley, and Doug Gustafson. And it's kind of a well-known case, and I'm going to say thank you to the show Killer Siblings, because that's where I got 99.9% of my information from. And this is going to be the longest case that I have done to date. I act like we've been doing this for years, but it's still the longest case so far. Hey, like, a few weeks is a year. Period. There's only Um. like 52 in a year, so fuck it. (laughs) We've been doing this for a good amount of time. In this case, we have three boys. I'll start first with George Kerr. He was born on May 2nd, 1972. He grew up in Shujiak, Alaska. In his like teenage years, he started hanging out with who they referred to as the resident bad boy, Raymond Cheeley. And they said he had quite the crew in high school, like talking about they were basically like the delinquents and the badly behaved children. Don't want to be cool kids. <clears throat> yes, pretty gotcha. much. And this is where Doug Gustafson comes into play because Raymond Cheeley and Doug Gustafson were friends. And Doug was described as off slash a little weird. And they referred to him as Lizard in high school. To be fair, who isn't a little off and weird? Or do they mean like off and weird, like watch out for he that was kid? Like watch out for that kid. Ooh, so okay, Cheeley and Doug both shared an interest in guns, which okay. is what sparked the friendship. Never mind. And then I didn't like write this part down but i guess doug like frequently read the the anarchist cookbook and like had like a deep like interest in guns and stuff like that so, so duck like, and run for cover kind of weird yes okay understandable weird. okay like pulls a backpack out in class like everyone bolts kind of weird okay understandable and i thought you meant just like he was a little weird i was like that's kind of rude yeah. now if, <laughs> now if you like guns go off support you let your freak flag fly but like we're as not gonna yuck your yum you got him monitor your children to an extent make sure it's not obsessive i will say 
calling him lizard maybe don't do that to people but was it supposed to be cool or like mean like did the friends make that name or the bullies named him that? they so they just call they he didn't fit into the group that he was in he was friends with the quote-unquote leader which was chile but they, uh, so he was like the outsider of the friend group, and they named him Lizard. Yes. Oh, fuck them, dude. That's rough. Um, so I thought you meant like the population of the school. Yeah. So, so Doug was, I'm sure, the population of the school as well. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But Doug was fascinated with firearms and explosives, and he even stated that his goal was that he wanted to be an assassin. So, like, red flag, red flag, red flag. Weird flex, but go off. Mm-hmm. George uh, just kind of fell in with the wrong crowd, at least is what yeah. it is appears as people spoke about him so in 1990 all three of them graduated high school they most frequently were seen hanging out at the barbecue that george worked at and at this point um the three of them together they began committing acts of vandalism burglaries raymond being referred to as the brains of the operation the three of them one night decided to rob a place called mike's meats and they stole the entire safe (laughs) (laughs) mike's meats I was <laughs> not the Robin Mike's meat. No, they did. Man, so, they globbered that bitch up, didn't they? Okay, they, I'm so sorry. They stole, Continue. they stole the entire safe, which contained roughly twenty thousand dollars in oh, it. Oh, period. And I, I wonder what that, how much that is today. I know. I mean, I'm gonna 90s. look up the inflation. Okay, so this was in 1990. While she's on that, I'm gonna continue. They used the money the next day to purchase high-end guns. There was an AR-15. A semi-automatic Uzi and an HK-91, which is a sniper rifle. Like, I'm not even going to pretend I know what any of that is. The only reason I know what an AR-15 is is because of Fortnite. They stole roughly $47,000 out of this barbecue place. You know? Mike's meats were popping. (laughs) Had to have been. He was selling more than just meat, if you know what I'm saying. He was selling a different type of meat on the side. Because ain't no way... Mike's Meats was the 90s OnlyFans. Yes, that is basically how I feel. Continue. I'm so sorry. That is astonishing. (laughs) On October 19th, 1990, the boys were driving around with intentions to party. Doug had his sniper rifle in his lap. Oh, kind of nice. Love that for us. Little hobbies. Just a casual drive by. Mm -hmm. He was shooting signs as they're driving around, which that in itself should be a crime a serious drive by kill people just by doing that so a red sports car was behind them and it went around them to exit on an off ramp okay but honestly me too i would cut off someone like that chili accused him of cutting him off doug wanted to teach him a lesson so chili accelerated and lined doug up doug leaned out the window (gasps) aimed and fired into the back of the vehicle and when he re-entered the vehicle he stated that he missed and they drove off However, he did not miss the bullet. Noted. Went through the back windshield, and it hit Jeffrey Kane in the head, killing him instantly. Oh, my fucking God. I do not remember how old they said he was at the time, but he was the same age as them because they went to high school together. Oh, my God. And I, I specifically typed this part, hurted, and I'm so sorry in advance to Jordan and everybody else. Am I going to cry? Uh, it's sad. So Good thing <clears> I have my eyelash appointment on Sunday. His mom talked because i was watching this episode and his mom's on it she talked about their last interaction where he was going out with a friend and she asked him do you need some money and he said no and followed up with mom i really love you and those were like his last words to her and it's so sad and you son of a bitch <laughs> <I know. laughs> but the boys were unaware that doug had killed jeffrey and they went to a motel and continued to party that night how are you partying after firing a gun at somebody 
Why? You don't deserve to party. No, they don't. Oh my god, I'm actually gonna cry. Yeah, it was oh it's sad as fuck. So the next day, Kerr was walking into his house and saw the article of what had happened. The one guy on the show said he didn't believe the bullet was meant to kill Kane. I put four question marks after that, because bitch, what do you mean? How are you going to fire He intentionally a... leaned out the motherfucking car to shoot. Yeah. How are you going to fire a high-end sniper rifle in no car and be like, hmm, sorry, I was just in a silly, goofy mood. And I just meant to it. shoot his rearview mirror off, <laughs> not his fucking head, apparently. Like, what the fuck is wrong with people? Yeah. They killed this innocent fucking man. For nothing other than... Because they wanted to teach him a fucking lesson. Like, how much of a fucking dweeb are you? So the boys got nervous and proceeded to try and hide evidence. George Fucking had pussy. gone to them and said that they needed to turn themselves in. The other two declined. And then as time went on, I don't know how long it was in between this, but George like finally like caved and he went to his boss and told him about what had happened. Can and you imagine being his fucking boss? Literally. Like a casual day at work and he's just like, hey dog, I gotta confess to killing this fucking dude on the highway. I guess they were really close and his boss convinced him to go to the police. So he was more like a friend than a boss? Yes, it was both. Um, They went to the police station, spoke with homicide detectives, and Kerr agreed to cooperate. They wired him so he could then talk to Gustafsson and Chile. On recording, Kerr asked Doug, asked him, why did you kill him? Well, Doug, why did you kill that guy? And Doug replied, I didn't mean to. Again, I'm not buying that in any from anybody that says that Doug didn't mean to because you do not aim a sniper rifle at anybody and pull the trigger without the intent to kill them. He, if anything, meant extreme bodily harm. If anything, at a minimum. And if he, if his goal was to be an assassin, like... Of course he's going to be shooting where he wants to shoot. Mm-hmm. So he... And that was all they needed to arrest him. Chile was much more vague in his responses. He did say enough for them to be able to have probable cause to arrest him. Chile and Gustafsson were both charged with murder. Due to his cooperation, Kerr was not charged. Chile was able to be charged because he purposefully positioned the car so Doug could take the shot. Yeah. So he's just as much an accessory. Absolutely. And in this episode, George was saying how, during it, when he was talking to the police, that he had told them, like, guys, you don't need to be doing this as it's happening. And... I wonder how much of that is true, though. I do, too. One of the people also did say that they believe that a lot of him going to the police was because he didn't want to be indicted himself by staying silent. However, I mean, at the time, if y'all... I mean, they all did have guns, and I understand, like, as a teenager, or I guess they were 20, being scared of the people in the front seat with guns who are using guns to say anything in the moment, and he did go to them before going to the police and say, hey, we need to turn ourselves in. Yeah. So... Could be some mob mentality shit. I don't know. So they were both tried and convicted and sentenced to 60 and 65 years in prison. We're not done, though. Q&A. This is not a good and there's more deal. I'm not a fan. I want a refund. (laughs) So Peggy Gustafson, she fully believed that her brother was innocent. Peggy, eat ass. (laughs) Peggy can eat ass. Uh, It will be important. George Kerr ended up joining the Navy in September of 1991. Two weeks later, Dave Kerr picked up a package from the post office that was addressed to George. He brought it home. When he opened it, it exploded. (gasps) It killed him instantly and severely injured his wife. Oh my fucking God. The, I don't know if I said that the package was addressed to George, but it was. I'm pretty sure I did, but fuck it. Uh, While recovering evidence from Dave's body, the most important piece ended up being a piece of the micro switch 
used to switch off the bomb, well, set off the bomb. It was part of a roller switch used to complete an electric circuit. When Dave opened the box, it completed the circuit and it set the bomb off. They were able to talk to Michelle once she came to, like, they were super surprised she did not die. And she said, I know it was from Doug. The question is, how did Doug send them a bomb from prison? Apparently, Chile had also written a hit list with George's name at the top, but it also had everybody that was involved in putting them both in jail. So they were able to, I guess, communicate through passing notes through prisoners, as well as at the same time of day, like at the same time, they would each have their own personal phone call. And whoever they called would then take the phones and put them mouth to ear so they could talk to each other through the phones like that. So it's like crazy. Was it Peggy? So it's kind of. Because I'm saying it's fucking Peggy. It's kind of super easy, I guess, for them to communicate. The investigator said it wouldn't have been that hard. So who helped them? The police then began reviewing tapes of anybody that they spoke to outside, who they called, and everything like that. It's fucking and Peggy. That fucking guy. They zoom in on Peggy and fucking bitch. Uh, Doug and Peggy had frequent conversations, so they were like listening to every tape, trying to find something, and they found the tape where Peggy is found talking to him, and she says that she had a dream, and she says, I dreamed I saw Gorgeous hitchhiking, and I looked around, and I didn't see anybody, and I hit him. I sent that puppy flying over my car, <gasps> and I looked, and he was still alive, and then I broke his neck, so then he said, there was an, another bit of the conversation where he, well, he was like, well, I hope you took your car to the car wash or something like that. And then he also said, keep in mind, this is just to fix your car and everything. So they, clearly it's in code and gorgeous is George in a situation. So that important switch that they, the, like the most important piece of information, well, evidence that I referred to is something that was sold at Radio Shack. I don't remember why that comes into play. And we're just going to leave it at that, and I'm sorry. But So then we have Craig Gustafson coming into play. And in one of these phone calls, he said, well, did you ask shit for brains about it? And they did find out through other contacts and phone calls that shit for brains is Craig Gustafson, who is the mechanic. Well, he is a mechanic. So the investigators then honed in on him. So they had ongoing communication back and forth. It was going for a while, and it went from standoffish to friendly, and they decided to exploit Craig as the weak link. On March 12, 1992, Craig calls and speaks to the postal inspectors to confess. So one of the days that Craig had gone over to Peggy's house, she was working on the bomb. This bitch is almost to term pregnant while she's working on this bomb and he was worried about it blowing up and killing her and the baby so he i'm so glad you didn't think about the fucking people who were gonna get the bomb that part fucking shithead so he assists her and assembles the rest of this bomb for her it should have blew peggy's ass up yeah and then keep in mind so this is yes i guess they kind of knew what they were doing because they i guess throughout time had been interested in weapons and stuff like that which so bitch how are you not gonna think that how are you going to be like, oh, Doug obviously didn't kill him and stuff like that, but then you yourself are going to go and do something to kill somebody? It's like, clearly it runs in the fucking family. What happened to them as children is what I want to know, that this um, is a fucking like joint too. mentality. I guess she, it did say something about her assisting and raising Doug, but their parents were present and they just worked a lot, but it wasn't like, to my knowledge, it wasn't abuse or anything like that. It just What went, did they do? Some weird together under that went under the radar for Doug. I don't think that they all had the same obsession, but I know they were all at least knowledgeable in it. So this part too, like this bitch 
then has her first daughter in the backseat and pregnant, driving the bomb to the post office. Are you fucking kidding? Peggy, eat keep. my fucking ass. So keep in mind, she could have hit one bomb wrong and it would have killed all of them. Fuck her. The fucking baby in the back. That yeah. poor fucking baby. So because of Craig, they were able to, they probable cause, search premises. Yeah, thank you, Craig, you fucking dipshit. Literally. And charge them. So, uh, Craig then disappears, though. He what was a co- fucking He was cooperating, and he was obviously on the list to arrest. He just disappears, and because the police maintained contact with his girlfriend, because Craig had been calling her from payphones every now and then, periodically, they, one day she agreed to cooperate, and she got Craig to stay on the phone long enough for them to trace what painting phone it was coming from, and then while she was on the phone with them, they arrested him. So, Craig pleaded guilty, and this bitch again, Peggy. Don't you dare. Oh, my God. Again, Peggy, listen. She had the nerve to say that the bomb did not intend to kill anybody. So Why did you make a bomb? So, we all just... You um, just casually made that? Like, it was fucking home ec? Like, so guess, oh, I'm going to make a fucking quilt, but instead of a quilt, I'm making a bomb today. So, for this family, every time they're in just a silly, goofy mood, they... Just uh, accidentally do don't mean to kill people. That may or may not kill somebody. <laughs> Uh, Bitches isn't like dropping a fucking fork on the ground like oopsies. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so she did end up pleading guilty and cooperate. She was sentenced to 28 years and Craig to 22. And then Doug and Cheely were upgraded to life without parole. I hope Peggy chokes on her own fucking pubes. Yeah. Peggy's a bitch. And I hope Craig fucking chokes on fucking prison wine and he dies. <laughs> yeah. I think this is the worst thing you've told me so far. Yeah, I'm, I'm like genuinely mad and upset. And I'm still upset about his mom. His mom's conversation. Oh, they were so. That is heartbreaking. It's awful, and it's like that kid did not need to die for literally no reason other than they just decided, oh, you cut me off, and now I'm gonna shoot you. I was like, such a minuscule fucking thing, and it's just like so. That also leads me to believe, like, no, you weren't. Just playing around. Like you, you were had, looking for someone. You just, were looking for someone yeah. and an excuse to do this. You wanted to kill someone. And yeah, so Peggy raised him and doesn't think that he did anything. However. Peggy didn't think she did anything building a fucking bomb. <laughs> so I just, I don't fucking get it. But yeah, so that's our cases. And oh my fucking God. I hope they all rot in fucking hell. Yeah, it, it really went Every out. single last one of them. And thank you again to uh, Killer Siblings, the show. I always appreciate the information there. I will not be watching that show because I will just be angry. <laughs> oh, it was a fantastic show. I'm going to go ahead and do the end shit. Uh, as of now, because in our past recordings, we haven't had episodes officially published. We were just pre-recording everything. Right now, we have two episodes out. And actually got some listens. And I really appreciate anybody who has listened so far and has shared it with somebody. Thanks, so now, uh, I'm looking at all of you. You're listening right now. Send He's it to someone. At you with binoculars. Send us to someone that likes true crime, because truly the best way for us to grow and become something is through word of mouth. So I need everyone who hears this send us somebody. Appreciate it. So then, next thing, in order to keep the show going, or at least let us expand and improve the quality of it, we do have a Patreon set up. We are going to be recording this week some bonus content. Jordan is going to be covering plane crashes and freak accidents, uh, depending on what she's feeling froggy about that week i am going to start off with 
a cryptids spinoff where I'm gonna once a month tell Jordan about a cryptid that may or may not exist. You can listen to our Flesh Pedestrians episode if you want like a preview on what that's gonna be like because I'll probably say something that'll freak Jordan out. Um, we have three tiers on Patreon for a dollar a month. You can have access to this bonus content for five dollars a month. I want to do like where me and Jordan because I started I started this podcast with the idea of I want to have something that can just be authentically unapologetically me including talking about whether it be past traumas or anything that goes on and I also want to be able to do something with it whether and give people advice while also making people laugh so that's where that tier comes from I want me and Jordan to kind of take time and do drunk advice for people because I think it would be funny to listen to us both get drunk and give advice we are not legally liable for anything that goes wrong should you take said advice but i don't know though we'll be the end of every (laughs) advice sentence (laughs) just take it with a grain we could be totally correct but i don't know and then for 15 dollars a month you get both of those things as well as you can pick both cases you can pick just a topic for the episode or you can pick one case and a cocktail as well. And with all that being said, again, I can't emphasize enough how, mu- how important it is that everyone at least attempt to share and leave reviews on everything, especially Apple Podcasts. That stuff helps us the most and will get us exposure. And anyone who does happen to sign up for Patreon, we really appreciate it because it will help a lot moving forward. Jordan is now going to take it away with a message for everybody. Hello. Thank you to my little TED Talk at the end, I guess. So we have our first partnership with Beautiful Soaps. They're made by our friend Melissa. She sells amazing homemade soaps and lotions. They are made with no excess chemicals in the product, so they are much more suited for people with skin sensitivities like eczema and acne, as well as people trying to enjoy more vegan products. She also has started having these products shared within the, I don't want to say like chemo community, but a lot of patients with cancer. Um, one of her friends personally had very dry and cracked skin and he used it and it definitely helped him with those issues a lot more than store-bought lotions. So they are giving pretty good feedback on it. So she is offering a discount for buying her products. And the only thing that you have to do is just when you do your order, reach out to her and let her know that we sent you. Um, and her social is Beautiful Soaps on Facebook. And that's on murder. Period. Period.